Hello and welcome to the Planning People podcast. My name is Will Robbins, editor of New Model Advisor, and today I'm joined by Paul Resnick, co-founder of Finometrica. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about risk today and a bit about asset allocation, but I wanted to use as my starting point an article written for us by IFA Nick Lincoln, Director of Values Division uh, Financial Planning in Radlett. Uh, as is typical of Nick, the article was, shall we say, forthright, but the headline was this, that as a concept, capacity for loss was, to quote, intellectually bankrupt. Uh, to sum up, what he took issue with was the notion that risk was about all about volatility. So I'll just read a passage. The constant seesaw of stock prices is not risk. It is normal and something to be welcomed. We need to be constantly reminding all our clients of this all of the time. The real risk for nearly everyone is seeing the value of their money wiped out by inflation over a three decade plus retirement period. Everything else is noise. So Paul Resnick, what say you? I would have a contrary view to Nick. Um, I'm not from Radlett, perhaps. <laughs> um, I've had 50 years talking with people about investment and investment risk. And I guess I can simplify it. Um, capacity for loss is your ability to cope with what air goes wrong and still meet your liabilities as they fall due. So um, inflation is one of those variables. Another is liquidity. Another is the, um, the real loss. So as we see at the moment, anybody that's got an illiquid asset frozen and the one we're um, we've, we're very visible at the moment is obviously um, the Woodford funds. Yeah. So what happened if you imagine somebody had all of their money in such a fund and they're in retirement? Yeah. Just to give you a, a brutal example, yeah. is inflation the problem? No, the problem is I have no access to the money. I don't know when I will have access and I don't know what the valuation will be when something comes back. And I'm not even sure what the tax treatment might be when it comes back. So there's the extreme case of risk capacity. An illiquid asset where you just don't know. Now, wind it back to a diversified portfolio. And let's assume 10% is in an illiquid asset. You could say, well, OK, once I know that's frozen, what I do know is the balance of the portfolio has to carry the 10% that's not accessible. Mm. Now, that portfolio may not be flexible enough. We may need to re revisit that to see if we need to take more or less equity. We need to go back to the client and say, well, do, do we have a different liability stream? At the moment, we're planning an overseas trip every year, a new car every three years. Okay, maybe we need to modify those big payments. We're going to uh, subsidise one of the kids' grandchildren at school. Maybe those things can't be done with such certainty because this amount has been frozen. So capacity for loss is just, it's a calculation and then it's a conversation. So I'm not sure where, where Nick and I disagree. <laughs> I accept the argument inflation is a variable yeah. um, and it's all about purchasing power, but that's all we're looking at. We're only interested in purchasing power against a liability. All financial planning is, is a way of matching the assets you've got 
in a cash, circum cash way against the liabilities we have to meet to have the life we want to enjoy. I suppose, you know, I had a conversation with some financial planners uh, around the table yesterday and we were discussing asset allocation. So, of course, we we're looking at their businesses and asking, you know, how often are you, are you making these decisions? What, what, what sort of manoeuvres have you done this year? You know, not trying to say they, they're changing with the wind, but, you know, there were obviously there are meetings that were probably sometimes monthly and, and there was a lot going on. Um, so, of course, that those decisions are being made with an eye to saying, you know, what are equities doing, what are bonds doing, and also, you know, what certain, you know, geographical locations where the UK is a good place to be or the US. And I suppose... Uh, a concentration on markets and on volatility plays into that uh, process. And I suppose possibly what the argument here, if there is one, or you know, the, the discussion, if there Are is one Are you an apologist is, for Nick? Is that what you're telling <laughs> me? <laughs> dear God, yeah. Um, uh, dear God, no. But uh, would be that, that, that somehow volatility uh, takes over that, sort of becomes a, that, you know, too much of a focus. And that's something I think Nick was saying that, advisors or too many advisors are guilty of? Oh, absolutely. I think that the, the, the greatest challenge we have is, is focusing on the right thing. So if I was to, um, to reflect on what, what I've learned, so I said I've been in the industry a long time, and the last 10 years it's become increasingly about evidence. Do you have evidence to support your recommendation? Do you have evidence? And the way it's articulated around the FCA is, look, every tool you use, do a due diligence on it, understand its strengths and weaknesses and mitigate those weaknesses in the advice you give, is a sort of generalisation of that. Okay, so if we say, let's look at asset allocation yeah. and say, what, we, what can we learn from it? And so the first thing that jumps out is that the evidence suggests when we look at the data index funds outperform other things. We've had that now for probably 10 or 15 years. Rebalancing index funds also seem to do fairly well. So if you wanted to say, what's my bottom line evidence by the market? Okay, I can do better than that, says an advisor. Okay, what, where's your evidence you can do better than that? Because that's what that... that um, that principle of doing a due diligence. I found an active manager that will do better, or I'm going to do it better. Now, when we go through and look at the data, one of the things that makes it most difficult is timing and what to buy and what to sell. When to buy it, when to sell it, what to buy. Now, when we have evidence that we can do that, then we should be involved in picking markets, spaces, countries, asset classes. Otherwise, a very sensible level of mass diversification within reason, logically supported, maybe based on the liabilities you meet as an individual. So you have your assets spread local and international based on the liabilities and the pricing for that. So if we have a lot of imports that we buy, maybe we need a bit more international. There's your starting point. There's your default. That's where evidence is. If I'm going to add value, I've got to prove from the past. Because I can't say I'm proving yeah, in the future. Yeah. That's the challenge for managers and for wealth managers who get involved in market timing. They've got to be able to prove it to themselves, mm. prove it to their clients, and invariably 
in the end prove it if they get caught by uh, by a dissatisfied complaint. I mean, talk, speaking to advisors, you know, certainly the active advisors I was speaking to yesterday, they, you know, obviously there's you know there's a recognition that you know the average manager, you know, doesn't perform perform well. And I think you know this, there was a obviously that you know that we all know that uh, you're not hopefully not buying the average manager. You you, you and they understand that the risk is. In the in the manager who's untested or has about you know isn't isn't going to do well and so obviously it's actually interesting that how much uh, energy and effort goes into in, into picking the manager <laughs> that's 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 sort of the greatest risk in many ways but putting putting that to sort of aside for for one moment you know what one of the things I really want to ask you about is you know however you do it however your your whatever vehicles you're using how the, the conversations we usually have about uh, risk and uh, capacity for loss and, and the, the business you run uh, keys then in, in then to asset allocation decisions and to what advisors are doing. So, I, you know, I suppose the question would be just what tell me what you see <laughs> in terms of methodology and, and yeah. well, let me so prior to coming today, I looked at some historical data. So um, so Finometrica is in a number of countries around the world and we do back histories against, we have about 18 storyboards in our back history. So I looked at one in particular, where we look at six countries, that the mainly Anglo countries, Germany being the, the one outside of Australia, Canada, the US, UK, I think a couple of others. Yeah. And I've looked at the average after inflation return over 50 years, and the ranges, yeah. the, the scatter of it. And give or take, the equity exposure beyond 50%, some of it local, some of it diversified, using international indexes. The after-inflation return is 6%, plus or minus one. Right. Okay, that's the history. Okay, for a 60-40 growth defensive, or a 70-30, or a 50-50, when you go down a bit lower, all we do with that, we, we take the index, we rebalance once a year to bring it back in each country now. They, they go through different cycles over the 50 years. Yeah. You know, some people got caught really badly in 2000. Others got caught really badly in 2008. But over, when we look at the average over that time, there's the return. So in essence, that's free. That, if we looked at that, if we're able to buy index funds at 0.05, and we say the past is some precursor of the future, and there is a sustainable premium for taking equity risk. Yeah. That's free. It may not be 6%. It could be 8% going forward. Some people would argue, no, it's going to be 4% going forward. I don't have any evidence for one or the other. So my sensible starting point is I think it'll be the same as it is because I know if I don't do that, my projections become complicated. And let me explain why. When the equity risk premium is large, I, do, I need less exposure to equities when I do my goal setting. Does that make sense? Yeah. When, when it's low, I need a higher exposure to equities. Okay. So I need, so that, that's, I, and I want to be a long-term investor. I don't want to be saying, ah, oh, we're changing the equity exposure because we've changed our view of equity risk premia. You know, you, you might be able to do that once in a career, but golly gosh, you know, you have to go back to every one of your clients yeah. 
when you change that view. So it's a critical perspective. If you're going to do asset liability matching, you must have a view. So if you go, let me add two for optimism, or take two away from my six for pessimism, and you're wrong. So th there's your core starting point on this stuff, is I'm an asset liability matcher. That's my goal as a financial advisor. I want my clients to stay invested through volatility and not do stupid things, which is where, where, where a chunk of my work comes from. And it goes, when I look at history and I see the data, and I've got some great stuff from the US of six-month fund flows following the equity markets. Equity markets go up, six months later, the money follows. And the same on the downturn. Okay, so that's what we know, but it's a really interesting piece out of the US, and I'm fairly sure it won't be different anywhere else. Our goal is to have somebody invested and not necessarily trading. There's no evidence we add value in trading. So our starting point is I want to be for them to be comfortable. And what's the comfort? Well, I, back to Woodford's an interesting. What proportion of my portfolio will I put at risk of being illiquid? Now, at one end, the example I gave you, I put 100% of it, it's a disaster. If I put 1% to it, why? Yeah. <laughs> what, at yeah. what percent is it worthwhile right. to yeah. do that? And my answer would be, well, you've got, you've got some predictability on the assets. Why not have the next conversation about the liabilities? Okay. What is it you're going to spend on? Well, it's clear this is the pattern. We know everything changes, but that's a reasonable start. We have different spending for a few years after retirement, a few years before retirement, mid-retirement, and then the last few years of our life. That's why we pay for our advisors to stay with us to help us navigate those changes. But you've got a feel for it. You say, well, with an equity exposure that's reasonable, what's the likelihood I can do that? Ah, oh, I can. Okay, now why would I want to add risk of a concentrated asset? Because everything else, when you say I want an income fund, yeah. what goes through my head is mm. short diversification diminishes, liquidity may be put at risk. So people put property yeah. for liquidity. Big goal in Oz, you can get lots of extra yield by chasing property. Yeah. And so we have property funds, they're geared, they're designed to produce tax-efficient income, and every 10 years they blow up. <laughs> we have mortgage funds, same thing. You know, peer-to-peer -peer mortgages, you have a similar thing yeah, here, but yeah, we call yeah, them yeah. mortgage trust, has a sort of collected together, a pile of stuff put in there, and suddenly yeah. a mortgage trust or something similar is a property developer. Right. Because they, they're now managing yeah. the underlying assets. We yeah. call it, so mortgage trust in Oz is known as a property trust in disguise. Right. So this only goes back to this whole notion of the due diligence that you need to do. Yeah. And to be, you can't protect yourself for negligence. You can make a mistake. I'm talking about professionally. Forget the legal obligation here. You're obliged as a professional to use the very best tools you can and to use the greatest clarity finding evidence to support. And at the moment, the evidence is saying high levels of liquidity, high levels of diversification, keep the fees relatively low, don't over-promise on the equity risk premium, don't underdo it because... 
And then you can work with the client on their cash flow issues, their management issues, and the investment has a much better chance of looking after itself. Because what, you know, what you're presenting there you know, is a somewhat more reasonable, <laughs> you know, fluid sort of version of the whatever it is, six model portfolio, risk-rated model portfolios yeah. uh, you know, that, that, uh, that a lot of advisors w will operate. Um, and it's a slightly different conversation because what you're talking, you know, what you're talking about is, you know, if you've got past the point where you've established that, you know, you've you've got the, um, you know, you've, you've you've the liabilities are essentially taken care of, and what why if you're trying to allocate differently to that, the question is why there's a burden exactly. of proof on exactly. why why once that's established, absolutely right. So I suppose where what they the, it makes the models look like a very crude version of of establishing where those li liabilities lay, essentially, because that's usually a conversation about how much risk do you need to take. Yeah, the, yeah, you're absolutely right. So the language has got lost in the regulatory obligations and not in the common sense. So in a sense, it's, taking, it's focusing on the needs of the client and not on the regulator trying to control the sale of product. Right. So around the world, for instance, all regulators use blabber words, you know, take into account the needs of clients, their risk tolerance, their risk profile, it's everywhere. Yeah. I cannot find a training course on the planet that teaches you how to do it. Yeah. Typically, right. it's, typically... Not you, even our, our own uh, fantastic qualification system. So what you get is, it's hidden behind this term professional yeah. judgment. Okay. So let me give you an example of something uh, I've been playing with, with my, my Plan Plus, the guys that um, bought Finometrico last year. We've been yes. experimenting. We sit in a group of advisors and we put up a case study and say, look, will you agree these are the variables that you take into account in weighting the, the, the asset liability stuff? Not the way I've defined it, but more broadly, just in categories. And I say, look, some people think that time horizon is a really important issue. Others think knowledge is important, others think experience is important, others think the risk you need to take to achieve your goals, others think capacity for loss, and I come from an argument that says your psychological preference for risk. Mm. Here is a 55-year-old with 350,000 quid. Here is a table with these seven items. Put them in order. How you would look at this, and I'd give them this same case study, with somebody 15 or 20 years older. Exactly the same criteria. So this is what I've learned. Automatically for the older person, they say, oh, we'll, we'll have a lower equity exposure. Mm. Just <laughs> blind following. When it, comes to, when it comes to the others, it's random. It is their own biases. Right. So yeah. some will say, oh, it's knowledge. Others will say it's time horizon. Others will say capacity, like Nick. Well, no, not Nick. Yeah. Some will say, I need to give them as much risk that and hold their hands to that because that's guaranteed to do it. Yeah. I've got my clients, the phenometrical people, saying, I need to know my client's risk tolerance and all else fails, I'll give them that because I know there, isn't, uh, there hasn't been a huge additional return yeah. for additional risk. That's what my research tells me. None of that's explored. Those are in the internal biases of advisors. So I've now been doing a series of workshops. So I said, here's a case study. Look over the shoulder of the person sitting next to you and then just talk. And 
and watch the room. And I've watched people who work in the same organisation that didn't even know they had those biases. Now, why are those biases unresolved? Because they're not taught. Mm. This, this is professional judgement. This is the right. handoff that somebody says who doesn't really know the mechanics. And the mechanics of financial planning are asset liability matching. You talk to me about one advisory firm or training course that has simplified it to that. That's all it is. Yeah. I'm only there to make sure I've got money available. Getting alpha, which is where we all came from, is almost irrelevant if you're running the risk of illiquidity. Yeah, yeah. And that's why the Woodford exercise is such a fascinating one, because it's the current ex expression of that. Yeah. As I hear it, many advisors said we would never be caught up, and you would know this better than me, yet um, there were a number of managers that had the Woodford funds in their fund of funds. Yeah. And it'll be fascinating as this, as this exploration works its way through. Um, Woodford did what lots of people did. They started off with one model. As the money came in, overwhelmed. As the money went out, overwhelmed again. Mm tried to survive, the fund changed significantly over that period of time, the riskiness of it changed, what's the role of a financial advisor yeah. to help people understand the consequences of what goes wrong? Scenario testing. Yeah. Yeah, the bottom 5%, the black swan, yeah. The rest of it will look after itself in some way. So that's why this stuff is so it's, important. It's really interesting about Woodford, you know, and again, just going back to that, that conversation or other conversations I had about that just for, for a second, you know, so many observations about that, you know, it was one of the top 3% or 1%, uh, or rather, I think only the riskiest, inter I think it was dynamic plan, or whatever, but they were saying the, the top, when they added analysis for us, they said, in terms of client profiles, only the top 3% in terms of we're riskiness. Ready for it. We're ready for it. And then they said, actually, shortly after that, they revised it to top 1%, you know. So I think, you know, there was a clear thing of, you know, in a in the first instance, it was sort of legitimate to hold Woodford, but I mean, it or should already have just had its place. And and, I, and and some of the you know, and there were sort of reasons about that. So people say, well, you know, I mean, not just about his track record, but you know, he was he was investing in stuff that other people weren't in, investing mm. in. And there's there are some you know, for certain portfolios, there can be sort of compelling reasons to do that, because you know, essentially, it's not it's not something that you could buy elsewhere, it might do something a bit different, and I suppose it has that. Uh, and that and, benefit, I, th and that's, that's the critical point, and it goes like this. Um, the, we should be able to work towards a thing called informed consent. Right. Okay. And so within the algorithm I've talked about, it would say, look, there is this really interesting fund, um, but it may do this. I need to work with you to do a capacity for loss calculation don't want to stop you investing. In fact, I want the opposite. We need to have investment in the sort of stuff that Woodford... I'm a small businessman. I can't get investments. People like Woodford are fantastic. It's the arseholes in the US that buy index funds I loathe because they're not interested in, in my sort of creativity. So my heart... Yeah. But it has to be capable of informed consent. I have to be able to see the consequences. I have to have transparency of communication and simplification if I'm doing that. That's for me is the critical issue. It's, we're shifting from paternalistic advice to collaborative advice, mm. knowing 
that transparency is low and that most clients really don't want to invest the time and the effort. So they're yeah. passing that back. So informed consent has got to be from the client, Mr. Advisor, Will, I'm assuming that you've done all of the appropriate reviews and you're going to have filtered through yeah. to give me the right ones. I'm not, not wanting to invest in riskier assets, but I need to know they're there. And I need you to have scenario tested yeah. to show me that I'll be able to cope. And then say, oh, am I still comfortable? You know, yeah. Not just yeah. sell the sizzle, but understand the other part. And that's, that's what's so critical in, in this particular issue. Um, it's not Woodford per se. They'll right. always be Woodfords. What's far more intriguing is in fact Hargreaves. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the best buy list. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, a yeah. best buy list implies something that might be a best hold list or a best sell list. Yeah. Because in the world of a punter, what's the difference between guidance and advice and all the other pieces? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I can see on the site all the regulate, you know, the, the, yeah, do not walk here, um, smoking kills and yeah, all of those yeah. things. That doesn't stop people smoking. No, <laughs> no yeah. or, so, or, or buying Apple products. Or, 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 <laughs> or all those. So there's a careful balance. Yeah. And poor guys at Hargreaves, at least at this stage, look like they got it wrong. Mm. That their judgment about the best buy list didn't take into account when things go wrong yeah. and how you feed back to people because they wouldn't necessarily know that that wasn't advice, even though it looked like advice. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, from some of the programmes that have come out about uh, Woodford, that seemed to be absent, not from all the journalism on it, but certainly from our point of view, and obviously from an advisor's point of view, you know, they're sort of screaming and saying, like, you know, this is, this is the huge issue. You know, you could find if, you know, um, what do you call it, caveat emptor, if you buy, buy Woodford by all means, but it you know, or go and see an advisor and if that, you know, you can claim on the FOS if that advisor does a bad job. But it's that bit in between. That, seems, yeah, you know, nobody knows. So I was talking to one of my mates and he admitted, he said he put half of his money into um, index funds and then he looked at the... Uh, one of the best buy lists, and then went to a really cheap platform and bought those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Job done. And yeah. he goes, yeah. I diversified. Yeah. And I said, mate, <laughs> how are you doing today? Yeah, it's mad. <laughs> um, just to sort of draw back, just to sort of go back to something, the sort of main point at the, at the beginning um, about this idea of, 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 um, of asset liabilities and risk premium. You know, again, that seems very simple. You think, oh. Great. But one of the things that advisors sort of know, think about, talk about is, you know, where that the nature of that seems to change, especially recently around equities and bonds and how much they should hold in cash. These are all things that have come up recently. So, you know, that, OK, we've got negative yielding bonds. On the one hand, what should I do? What, do I need to keep holding bonds? Do I try holding a different type of bond? Uh, and, and, and there was sort of a lot of conversations uh, around that. I'm interested to know what you think about that, and also cash. So, you know, we had a big debate online where an advisor was saying, well, my risk tool uh, was saying it should, it should only be 3%. My, uh, I can't remember what it was, DFM or, or, or multi-manager or something, was saying it should, we're holding 10% cash. And, I, and I'm sort of having an argument <laughs> with them to say that, you know, you're, you're outside of the, the parameters. And advisors came back to us saying, 
oh, actually, we, yeah, we hold, we're holding loads. We're putting much higher amounts at the moment for all sorts of reasons. Uh, yet others saying, no, 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 terrible idea. You should only, only ever have a, as much as you need to, to, to you know, for uh, emergencies or buy, buying opportunities, things like that. So the interesting where that I think that comes a little bit more compl complicated is to say, actually, there's that relationship between what well, between equities, but that, the behaviour of bonds and, and, and what people are doing with cash. I, I sort of thought was very interesting in the last few few months. Certainly, I just wondered what you thought about that. Um, well, once again, back to informed consent and disclosure. What's the black swan events? And scenario test it. So, so for me, the critical part is most of Monte Carlo modelling looks at indexes or representations that become indexes. So it takes into account the swallowing of underperforming assets because they sort of disappear out. Right. But we're moving into having assets that may behave differently. Mm. So we've got to model it. Um, and then, so you, my argument would be, as a professional, your obligation is to, is to have evidence. Sure. <laughs> it's not to be negligent and it's not to take somebody else's view. You're paid a fortune. You think about, you know, of the pe three people that, that get well paid for, uh, for giving advice, you know, at the simplest level. You know, the fund manager used to get 0.7, the platform, you know, 0.4, and the advisor got close to one. I don't, yeah. That's the sort of risk. So where are we going with that? Well, the one that's getting the greatest payment at the moment are the ones in short supply. Mm which is clearly good advisors. So they're able to, uh, my sense, they're able to hold their, their price up. They're the ones that have the best present value of that client. Remember, fund manager will lose them after five years. The platform may lose them after seven years. The advisor who gets a 40-year-old may keep them for 40 years. Yeah. May, so the advisor present value of the client is the most valuable thing on this planet. Selling coffee doesn't, you know, selling a car. Nobody gets paid more than an advisor does that I can think of. So there's, you're brilliantly paid. Yeah, you've got lots of liabilities, I understand that, but you found yourself there. You should be having the most robust defence of yourself mm. so you don't put it at risk. So how does that, so take, take sort of the bonds the bonds, so about, The bonds yeah. that you model it. You, you say to yourself, okay, I've got five DFMs that are putting a proposition. Let them take me through the debacles. What would the debacles be? Okay, we know the most obvious ones. You know, sovereign debt failure in two or three countries. We know a world war. Mm. Okay, well, how close are we to a war? I don't know. Closer than we were last year. What's likely to happen? I'm going to the Middle East next week. Yeah. Tell me about World War. There are actually rockets going across the Gaza Strip, not in singles accidental, but in hundreds. Will that trigger a war? I don't know, but it might. So that's, that's where this stuff is. Now, how many advisors at the moment do scenario testing of things in portfolios? Now they use... Monte Carlo and say, well, that will be it. So that's why this, once again, I'm back to Woodrow, and I don't mean to pick on him because he just happens to be there. But there will be some assets yeah. that are just don't work. Now, back yeah. to bonds. What will happen when bonds go from minus one to minus three? Will you make a capital gain? I don't know. You, 
ask 20 advisors and see if they've done the calculation. What right. we know is that when it went from seven to five, they made a capital gain. Right. So it's not about running yield. R running yield is the triggery bit, yeah. but it's the actual calculation. Now, this conversation about bonds has been live since, since you were a boy. <laughs> um, why? Because bonds were 12%, then 11, then 10, then 9, then 8, then 7, then 6, then 5, through the last 25 years. Right. Every year that I can remember, and I'm, Bob, somebody out there will, will prove me wrong, bond funds have done much better than their running yield. Right. You have gained from diversification. Do I have any evidence that it will be any different in the future? I can think about it. I can bring quality closer. I can shorten duration. Mm. I can yeah. diversify. Am I going to put my, all my money on saying it won't happen, that we won't go to a minus seven? I, I don't know. But if I'm out there as a professional doing that, I can't remain negligent. I've got to have some evidence and I've got to have worked with somebody who models portfolios and doesn't yeah. do Monte Carlo. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And I think uh, a lot of sort of your, you know, the, the perspective you bring on these questions that is so slightly different or, or, what, or what you, or even advisors might expect from you because they you know, use your service, is that, of, is that of the sort of larger perspective. Um, I think it, it sort of illustrates that sort of ease, how easy it is to be drawn into a certain story that's playing out for a year or even yes. even five years and thinking that is the what's story important. Uh, yeah. well you have grasped it we have a recency bias as you've and yeah. what do we do so recency bias apply and then we tend to only want to talk to people that have similar opinions to ourselves yeah yeah that that's that's the age we're in we see this in the schisms in politics. I don't want to hear from a Brexit person or a Remainder person because they're fundamentally dishonest. And so we only listen to the people we want to hear because they reinforce our biases. And that's, that's part of the problem when the classic education in our industry is funded by a fund manager. Who provides the most CPD points? I'm, I'm aghast. <laughs> this is a profession. Yeah. If I'm a professional, I should be saying, I want my education to come from somebody independent. You know, you, I would like to believe in my little... It's people like me who say, this is all bullshit. You guys are locked into this silo of thinking. Hmm. And you need to pay for it. You are the best paid people on this planet for continuing relationship with a client. Would pay for some independent research... Yeah. And see whether this is true or not. Don't talk to a fund manager to do just, it. Just, just, and I think that's, I mean, that's a good point. And, you know, you, and I think it's that there is a, you know, specific point, just to get into some more, more of the pragmatics here, you know, um, not that it wasn't pragmatic, but the uh, interesting where, you know, definitely come across firms where a big part of their investment committee methodology is talking to managers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, sorry for the squeak. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, but I mean, you know, you know that that's that seems interesting in the context of everything you've said. And while there seems like there would be benefits from a human point of view of being able to meet the person you're dealing with, it seems like that is possibly a really dangerous red red herring 
in terms of when it comes down to the methodology of your well, committee? Yeah, well, the classic is, and look, I, I've, been, I said, I've been in this industry a long time. I spent a lot of time talking to people there. We do trips to visit fund managers all over the site. You know, we speak to fund managers at least once a year. I have a story for a very quick story. I was around the 87 crash over the weekend and my fund manager went to see on the Monday morning and I said, when we open up, it's going to be really difficult. What are we going to do? He looked at me and said, I'm off to the Tandor for lunch. <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> Write all this back. He was overwhelmed by what went on. Yeah. And all he could think of was... Uh, was a beef vindaloo. Yeah. <laughs> now they're human. Amazing. Um, yeah. Now what we know about about fund managers, just to share with you, now, you know, um, we measure risk tolerance. Risk tolerance is normally distributed. Whenever I sit in a room with professionals, and I say, look, you're not going to believe what I do because you know more than I do. You know, what I learned was two things: high risk tolerance and overconfidence are bedfellows. You talk to somebody with a high risk tolerance, they'll think you're an idiot. Secondly, all fund managers have a high risk tolerance. Okay, the human interaction is, well, this is a person that's so conceited, I'm sitting there, really hard not to be intimidated. Mm. So, and you go, well, I'm a researcher, I'm on a fraction of the salary of, uh, of this guy, he's a god. If I cared, I wouldn't be doing this. So, it's a self-reinforcing problem. Um, we think that there's value, yeah. So that cycle of just being internal is really dangerous and you've, you've identified yeah, it. Yeah. We just talk to people like ourselves and we call them fund managers and we look up to them. Yeah. And I just said, a couple of more questions before we finish, just quickly. Just on, the, on, on, just on this one specific one about asset allocation, which was just, just from your experience, you know, you must, you must have a view, you know, we find that, advisors kind of change to make some major changes of once a year uh in, in in january is that is that about right given the sort of as you say they should be taking this long long view rather than having sort of quarterly or you know half yearly no, discussions because basically is, is it ever right to be making these calls within if six they months have the competence to do so and they have some evidence they've added value through doing it by comparing their performance against a benchmark yeah of course Otherwise, it's bullshit. Right. It's just, I'm okay. I can't think of anything else to do for my fee. Yeah. I know the regulator is saying, I need to show I've done something. The other side of it is, what's asset liability matching? Yeah. Now, that's what you get paid for as an alternative that says, what's changed in your life? What's the change of emphasis? Are, more, are some of your values... So my wife and I have completely, as many husbands, entirely different views about what to do with money. You know, she wants to do things like fund my grandchildren's education. I'd rather they just get educated by the world. But then when she gets furious and says, well, I'm cutting you off. I'm not going to do that because you were rude to me. Okay, so there's a change. Now, all of those things need to be discussed, not because they're right, but because they're the critical issues to help people understand that their values and changes, they determine the liabilities. They're the interesting things. Yeah. 
and you discover you're not well or one of my mates died the other day, gosh, that changes your perspective of what you want to do yeah. in the time you've got left. Just making that's sure the resources normal. you've got are, are, are geared around meet those what it bits is. That just that's a, and you'll hear this yeah. stuff. It's yeah. called coaching or other life coaching, and it's derided by many people yeah. who talk about investment sure, stuff because sure. they're terrified about anything no. human. Will you are the perfectly but, balanced but, human but being? I mean, I just I just we'll finish soon. But it was yeah. I mean, I think that there's an interesting point about you know a firm will do that coaching and and be good at it. They'll also have a set piece. That the investment committee are, uh, are dealing with, which is the the annual review or the, the yeah, quarterly and review. that's a very minor but, it's, but it's necessary. making sure the two connect. One's in service. Utter, of the utterly other. right. Yeah. So, so the issue so, should be yeah. there should be no surprises. Your portfolio, you should be able to see. We expect this. On the upside, it might look like this. These are the things that might go wrong. We don't know when the trigger will be. We don't know what the trigger will be. We don't know how far it will fall. We don't know how quickly it will recover. But everything in history shows that it goes down, it comes up, and you get caught for lack of diversification, things that are geared, things that have counterparty risks, things that weren't liquid. We've got a long history of that, yeah. and that goes back to the start. You start with something that's as safe as possible. It's as anodyne. It's got no personality. It's called the index. And you ask yourself, do I need to add more investment risk to meet the client's goals? Not my self-interest, not my interest in, in charging a fee, but do I need to do that? Is there enough evidence that I can marshal to do that? That's the critical issue. And I think just, just sort of finally, you know, the, the one question that I sort of did plan for you at the end, and I don't... I think you sort of already said a lot that would inform it. It was just around sequencing risk as a specific thing. Just because, I, you know, I dug out an article you'd written for us, I think, back in 2015, obviously pension freedoms, and I was sort of saying, and, I, and the, the arguments at the time was sort of, you know, obviously how are we going to deal with this and actually advisors need to wake up to how important. And it still is because obviously now every, with, you know, the number of, uh, of, of people who are now being advised on drawdown is really important. But what was interesting there uh, in, in the debate that was going on there between yourself and, and other people uh, was... To what extent do you need to worry about black swan events uh, in equity markets? And, you know, this idea of, well, you know, they could happen in, within your 20, 30 years of retirement. And that, that could be the, you know, a, 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 you know, a big factor. Or taking that longer view that we've spoken about already, actually, it's a sort of mediocre 10, 10 years of, of sluggishness that would be, would be worse. Or, or, you know, given that a portfolio isn't just equities or so i just just quickly <laughs> wondered what your you know a few years on and having looked at the pension freedoms and looked at what's been going on and looking at data what your view is of that now not much different yeah. <laughs> i'm a slow learner perhaps <laughs> uh, quick to opinion slow learning um the the critical thing is what we learned in that is if you if you de-equitize you miss out on the upside it's a, it's almost as simple as that um, for every chance it goes down, it goes up. So we have to look at managing the bottom. Okay, now you put half of your money into cash to meet the next five years' payments, and the market booms. Okay, so you need to wait there. I don't know what the right answer is, but it is an overt decision that you take with the client. Now, the best thing, of course, is to say the natural income is our natural spending. I have some lines of credit that I can access 
if I need to. I talk to my grandchildren who are going to inherit this and say, okay, do you want to buy into my future? I take out an equity release product. I downsize the house. Um, I'm, I don't go on. There are dozens of other ways of dealing with sequence risk before you get to de-equitizing the portfolio is what I'm saying. And we know sequence risk is there. We've seen it in the past. Take out 7% out of a portfolio, you add more risk than if you're taking out five, and three's better still. <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll leave it there. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you, Will.